0: Of all of the various tools and instruments that God uses to uh, make our lives more like his, more able to be of use to his good purposes, uh, none may be as powerful and as personal as the gift of God's friendship. And that's what I want to think about with you today, what it means to commune with God as a friend. Uh, Jesus says this, No longer do I call you my servants. Uh, for the servant does not know what the uh, the master's business is, but I have called you my friends, says Jesus, because I have made known to you all that my Father has shown you. And greater love has no one than this, says Jesus, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now I want to acknowledge at the outset today that appreciating the fullness of what Christ is saying to us here is particularly challenging in our time, maybe more challenging than maybe any other period of history, because in our day, it's easy to get friends, right? You use social media, you've got bazillions of them out there. You've got people uh, you don't even know who want to be your friends uh, in many cases. And more and more, even the high and mighty people of this world, even the great celebrities and the powerful ones... Uh, seem to be coming our way in this sort of friendly kind of fashion, right? Once upon a time, if you were a Catholic, your best hope of ever getting any contact with the Pope was a glimpse from the balcony as he waved quickly and went back inside. Nowadays, he travels around in a, in a, in a Jeep Wrangler, right? right? He's got a Twitter feed, the Pope does. The President of the United States uh, is exchanging jokes with Jimmy Fallon. And uh, it seems so amazingly accessible. The former president uh, of some time ago, President Clinton, now hangs out in the deli where I used to get my bologna sandwiches as a kid. And he's just that close and available to people. Uh, I, I have a good friend who pastors a church out in California for many, many years. And, he's, and he describes how even the great, the divine goddess Cindy Crawford would descend from heaven into his church building sometimes. It wasn't actually heaven, it was Malibu, but it was close. (laughs) And, And amazing people now seem within our reach. And so it becomes harder and harder, perhaps, to appreciate the friendship of God. I know that people these days frequently speak of God in very familiar terms. I hear people all the time talking about him as that big guy in the sky or the man upstairs. I hear people speak of them in t- terms that just suggest he's sort of their on-call consultant. He's their spiritual Siri. He's this uh, always-on kind of person. Uh, their political ally in many cases. Listen, in this political season, how many people talk as if God is sort of just is their, is their political friend. Uh, absolutely aligned with everything they believe politically. Um, He's like that friend who always loves to give us exactly what we want on our birthday or at Christmas time, who's a personal shopper for us in some ways. We can go to this great, friendly God when we badly need a parking space or when we want the weather to be good for the golf outing or... um, or, or when we want um, somebody we loved or even ourselves to be spared any kind of physical, real physical suffering, even though that great decline towards death is the one indisputable, irrevocable fact of every life. And yet we turn to God in this way. We turn to him. What a friend we have in Jesus, the old hymn goes. You know, Jesus, could you please? Jesus, we're friends, right? Could you do something about the bears? You know? Could you please do something about that? Now, if you go on and read the text that we've cited for today from Exodus chapter 33, and I want to invite you to do that. If you have your Bible open up in the Bible and scan it, Uh, you've got can get your get a Bible on your phone. If you didn't bring a a physical one with you, there are other ones over here. Always on uh, Sundays, uh, we've got them in these racks. But in Exodus chapter 33, we're reading the story of the Israelites as they're moving through the wilderness. And we get this very strong impression that they do not have this this kind of experience of God that people today uh, talk about. Um, They have a whole different set of expectations uh, toward God. Um, The Israelites have been uh, encountering this God in mysterious ways. He's revealed himself. Uh, to them in their journeying. Uh, he's done it in the form of plagues and pillars of flame and towers of fog. They had seen Moses go on up onto this high holy mountain to meet the Lord. And they'd seen the mountain surrounded in thunder clouds and heard great peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and just Uh, amazing experiences of God. And when Moses comes back down from that mountain where he has been encountering God, Moses' hair has turned completely white, worse than mine, because he's been in the presence of the holy God. And it's like he's glowing now. He's been irradiated by the wonder of this dangerous presence into which he's walked. That's the experience that the Israelites have of the nature of God. God had been profoundly good to the nation of Israel. This amazing God had been awesome in his kindness towards Israel. He delivered them from slavery, from bondage, hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt. He'd pulled them out of that land and set them on a new way. He'd given them all kinds of food. He had protected them from all sorts of dangers when they were out there in the wild places. Uh, God had given his marvelous law to them to guide their way. He had promised he was taking them to a land of milk and honey and they should not give up when the going was hard because he was going to get them there. But was God their friend? Did any Israelite ever think of God as their friend? They would not have used that word. They would have not dared such an intimate understanding of God based on their experience of him along the way. The Jews understood God to be so magnificent, so very holy, that no sane mortal could possibly feel safe in his presence. In fact, the Lord, and I'm quoting now from Exodus 335 the Lord had told Moses to tell them, you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I were to travel with you for even a moment, I would destroy you. You don't want me that close to you, in fact, is what he's saying, right? Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard says that we would be wise to recover at least a little bit of this sort of sensibility in our time. We have become too casual in our appreciation of the nature of God. And and, and she says that the great danger for us is that we treat God now as this sort of harmless, malleable, indulgent, or utilitarian accessory to our lives. And, And let me quote some of what she writes. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, she writes, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of the conditions that they are actually living in. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one really believe a word of it? Many churches, she writes, are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT and not recognizing what they're playing with. Why, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets, writes Dillard. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares when we walk into the building. They should lash us to our seats. For the sleeping God may wake one day and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return to life as it once was for us. This is the kind of God. This is the awesome God who has chosen us to be his friends. The ancient Israelites, Moses especially, got this. And Exodus says that it was the practice of Moses, when they were traveling through the wilderness, to meet with God in a tent. He'd set up this sort of traveling tabernacle, this tent structure, this precursor to what would one day be the great temple. In fact, the word, by the way, uh, tabernacle or this tent is the same word that is used in John chapter 1 when we're told, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, although it literally means and tabernacled amongst us. The word became flesh and got into the tent with us is what the New Testament says. And 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 Moses would meet with God in this tent, and it, the scriptures say he would set it up at some distance from where the Israelites made their camp at night. Why do you think he set it up at a distance from where the Israelites made their camp at night? It was so in case there was an explosion. It was so that in case the encounter of the holy God with a sinful man like Moses produced some kind of devastating result... It would limit the casualties. And that's why the tent was set away. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, the scripture says, all of the people would get up and they would stand at the entrance of their own tents. Right? They would watch in wonder as Moses went into the tent. They didn't want to get close to that. They would all watch until Moses disappeared inside. And they knew that Moses was bringing their needs before God. And that God was actually speaking to Moses. As he went into the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down. A symbol, a a signal of the, a sign of the um, mystery of who God was. This pillar of cloud would come down. It would hover at the entrance of the tent while the Lord spoke with Moses. And when the people saw the cloud, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. I I don't know whether they were doing that out out of a sense of humility or a sense of fear or a sense of worship, but they would bow down. And the Israelites, and especially Moses, by now in his journey, understand that, that this is the appropriate attitude when you come into the presence of God, right? You don't come to God with your big me, as we talked about last. You, know, you don't let the big me out in the presence of this awesome God, you, you don't approach God as if he needed you as his fan or his follower, much less his friend. You just come humbly. You come with your heart and your mind trembling and open. You come listening to hear what God has in his heart and on his mind. And you come ready to respond to him, to do what he calls you to go and do you come honestly with the needs that you have because you couldn't imagine being in the presence of someone like this and not being authentic because he knows it all. He sees it all. So you just, you open yourself to him in that presence, though you never think you have a right to expect him, you know, to do things for you. You just, you just can't think that way in the presence of this God you've come to. In some way to know. You come mainly to experience God. You come in a word to commune with this God. The famous Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. Any of you heard that name, Thomas Merton? Merton writes uh, powerfully about the spiritual life. And he says, the deepest level of connection, the deepest level of connection between two beings is not communication, but communion. But communion. It is wordless. It is beyond speech. It is beyond concept. It is simply being with and for the other, without agenda, and finding that in that companionship, the other fills you, the other shapes you, The other one finds you in the depths of who you are, empowers you in ways you can't even find the words to describe. Maybe you've had somebody in your own life, a human being like that. You know, you can be lying with them, sitting with them, driving with them, walking with them. Nobody needs to say a thing, right? But just being in that communal presence with them is one of the most nourishing, wonderful things you ever experience. And you don't want to leave it behind. You don't even want to break it with speech. This is something of what communion is. And I picture Moses entering that tent of meeting. And he kneels down and he just waits in silence. And I don't know whether he could even sense that the cloud was coming down toward the entrance of the tent but I just see the presence of God descending upon him and surrounding him and filling him up beyond words. And I see God and humanity communing once again on the earth like long ago in a long forgotten garden. Once human beings walked with God naked and unashamed and it was good. And in this tent of meeting, the Bible says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a what? To a friend. Yeah. In this divine communion. So here's the incredible wonder here that I want us to dwell on as we prepare to come to this table today. God did not need Moses as a friend. <laughs> right? God lives in the tri-unity of himself. He's got like this perfect friendship in himself. He did not need Moses as a friend, but God chose Moses to be his friend. He invited Moses into this regular practice and experience of communion with him, and Moses never missed it. He did not want to miss this experience with God. Day after day, Moses would go out to meet with the Lord, Exodus 33, and many other parts of this book tell us it was in these times of communion that Moses' character got shaped. You know, that big me Moses we talked about earlier, uh, last week, this this, this Moses who was always conflicting in various was not the same Moses after a while because of his communion with the God of reconciliation. It was in this time that the character of God rubbed off on Moses, the way the character of a great friend rubs off on you, I'm sure you've experienced. It was in their communion with one another, that God's will and his way started to become clearer and clearer to Moses to the point when Moses could be out there and God would be no longer visible to him, but he would just know what God would do in this situation. He would just know what God would say because he communed with him in the way that some of you have communed with others and now you kind of know how they would move in any circumstance. It was through this communion that Moses gained the strength he needed to face the wilds and the challenges of the wilderness and the complaints of the people he was trying to lead because Moses knew that no matter what was going on outside and all of these other relationships and circumstances, he had a friend who would never leave him nor forsake him. Now here's the remarkable part. That life-changing relationship with that Awesome, holy, staggering, mighty, glorious God. That same kind of relationship, God in Jesus Christ freely offers to you and me. Right? What God did sort of once long ago with a Moses and then later with a David, right? He now offers freely to you and to me. All we have to do is accept the offer of his friendship. I have called you friend, says Jesus. I have chosen you. Will you choose me? Will you choose me? You know, there are many ways that we can nurture that friendship. And many of you are practicing these ways already. Uh, But let me just call out a few of the ways we can live into this communion in deeper and deeper fashion one way is to simply say sorry for the things that you've done that have hurt the friendship some of us are carrying those today we brought into into this place uh, things that happened in this week past or maybe over a lifetime past that we know have broken the bond of intimacy with us and our friend or we know that it would break his heart these things that that we've done or said or allowed ourselves into patterns with and maybe we just need to say we're sorry you need to maybe find your own tent of meeting in or on a regular basis someplace. Maybe you need to spend time uh, in the week ahead, uh, building just the beginnings of, of a quiet time, of a period of prayer with the Lord each day. Uh, maybe you want to be out there walking with him in his creation more, uh, kind of like the old garden experience. Uh, walk, don't go naked and unashamed out there in the winter. It's, it's getting cold in Chicago. But maybe that walking in creation is one of the things you want to... Or running or whatever it is you like, biking, whatever it is you like to do. Do it with him in a conscious way. Or write out your thoughts to God as you might to a pen pal. Uh, journal, journal them out. Develop that kind of a practice. Or, or make a, a, a practice of reading what he's written more regularly and soaking in his character and his, his will. Or discover what God likes. You often get that by reading this book. Discover what he likes and what he loves to do and then join him in those things in, in intentional ways. Thank God for what he has done in your life. Celebrate his presence with you. Commune with him. Commune with him. Commune with him. Nothing will so design your life for the good as communing deeply and regularly with the friend you have in Jesus. That's my big message for today. Nothing will so design your life in, in, in a marvelous way as communing regularly and deeply with the friend that Jesus shows us we have in God. And, and right now, that greatest of all friends is issuing a very special invitation to us. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. That's what he said to his disciples. He was about to go to the, to the cross, yet there was a sparkle in his eyes. He looked around at his friends and said, let's, let's eat together. Let's share this meal together. And recognizing that you are every bit as important to him as Moses was, as those first disciples were. I invite you, beloved, come now to the table that our friend has prepared for us with his very life. Let's pray together. Lord, we come today in awesome wonder before all of the work of your hand before the wonder of the beating of your heart, before the glory of your cross, and the sweetness of your invitation to be your friend. And so we come now to commune with you at this table through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.